Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Brees. Episode 6, Mevil Maur, the EWC's book and journal club. Welcome back, everyone, to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching. We're flying solo today, just you and I, Tom. Um, we're going to be having a look at uh, an article, but we ought to give our listeners a bit of a sort of context of this, where this is coming from. So the EWC, the Education Workforce Council, got in touch with us because what they're trying to do is to promote a really great resource that is free and open access to teachers in Wales, which contains a lot of really useful literature. Now obviously we've got a big push and a drive towards a research informed profession and giving teachers both serving and trainee the opportunity to engage with literature to support and inform their practice and and this is a way that EWC are trying to make that literature more accessible. Yes, and it's long been an aspiration over here in Wales to try and make teaching a more research-informed profession. I mean, probably not just in Wales, probably elsewhere as well. And one of the barriers to entry, I suppose, for serving teachers, quite apart from the fact that they're incredibly busy, is the fact that the journal article economy kind of works around a paywall model where you can't get hold of stuff so i know that teachers do tend to get a bit annoyed when the likes of us stick up social media posts saying wow we read this article it was brilliant and really exciting and then they click on it and find out they don't have access it's a problem and despite the rise of open access publishing in some journals you know universities publish uh, and pay to make it publicly available not behind a paywall it's still quite hard to get hold of stuff so the education workforce council who are the body who kind of certify teachers and and register them and make sure they're not being naughty and that kind of thing have made the ebsco database of education literature available to teachers as a whole and I think it's it's probably not a very well-known perk is it of the job it's not and I suppose teachers are all maybe shouting at their <laughs> at their uh, their radios or listening devices at the moment saying well when am I supposed to find the time to do this and I think that is on the minds of the EWC and so what they're aiming to do with this particular project that they've asked us to um, contribute to is to give an overview of uh, Uh, some key sources from that database. We've selected one that speaks very directly to our business, which is initial teacher education. There's a whole range already uh, available on the EWC website, sort of short overviews of the sources that might give you an insight into what that particular source has to offer um, that might entice you to dip into it more deeply. Yeah, so this article isn't going to tell you how to teach better, but what it perhaps is going to do is just remind you what goes on with teacher education here in Wales because as I always remind our students it's a hundred percent of our lives and it's quite a small part of teachers lives but I would say there is a increasing commitment in schools to really taking teacher education seriously I think probably back in the day maybe when I was training you know you you just said yes send me some students and I'll sort them out but now it's much more of a a kind of partnership model isn't it Where, where schools and universities are working together and so it's well worth just taking a moment to look back and find out how we got here not least because Wales and England really are diverging in the way that they see teacher education. 
Absolutely. So we should probably name the article. It's entitled The Reform of Initial Teacher Education in Wales from Vision to Reality. Um, And it's by John Furlong et al. And what it does, just in summary, is, as Tom said, it sort of traces the history of the reforms in teacher education in Wales. And, you know, so various milestones in that process. But what it does more interestingly is talk about the accreditation criteria, how that really is is pushing us forward into very new territory, as Tom said, working much more closely in partnership with schools as teacher educators. And what this article also does, which is very illuminating, is it takes three case studies. It looks at three particular university partnerships, um, partnerships with schools. It looks at Swansea, it looks at us uh, in the Cardiff partnership um, and also Caban up north. And it tries to bring to life what in practice the accreditation criteria looks like on the ground for teacher educators both in university and in school. So I suppose we should just give a bit of an overview of the sort of key things from, from the history, Tom, since we were living it, what, what's important for us, for our listeners to know? Yeah, well, it's easy to kind of forget this stuff or for it to be overshadowed perhaps by the new curriculum. I mean, obviously, the new curriculum is the big game in town where schools are concerned but actually the new curriculum was just one plank of a a kind of root and branch reform of education in Wales I mean at the time I think everybody felt it was perhaps a little bit over ambitious that they were throwing all this stuff out at the same time and rewriting it but I suppose with hindsight it, it was necessary to do the whole thing because you know you can't reform one without the other I would say I mean you you mentioned here that that this article gives examples from three different institutions. I think it's probably, looking back on it, was a bit of a strategic error to, as they did, they kind of set us against one another, didn't they? I mean, we all talk very cosily about partnership working and we're all kind of trying to make friends with Bangor and, and University of South Wales and all of that. But it really can't be kind of understated how difficult it was at the time that we we were all basically told right you're all not doing teacher education anymore you've got to start again with a blank sheet of paper because what you've got is not fit for the the new kind of reformed education system and by the way we're we're not telling you how many places are going to get it we're not going to tell you how we're going to divvy it up you are basically all competing against each other and I think I think it's possibly worth just dropping in at this point. That probably wasn't a great way to to foster an atmosphere of uh, co-construction and partnership working between institutions because we were basically in competition. We were, and it kind of mirrors some of the the reading that I've done and things that I've heard uh, about just general education reform and what it's thrown up about schools working in competition with one another and now this move and this need to be working more closely in collaboration to make sure that there's consistency across sort of clusters of schools regions um, with regards to the curriculum for Wales so I I think this can only be a good thing time will tell as to whether or not this culture of sharing and co-construction and collaboration will have the impact where it's needed for pupils but I think you're right it did set a bit of tension at the start this article perhaps might point to a a rather rosy picture at the beginning but it 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 was very much not the case. (laughs) No because none of us knew whether we would be accredited We, we had these really quite open criteria we were given you know we had to work in partnership with schools we had to make sure that you know research was central that kind of thing but other than that we we were sort of shooting in the dark and let's not forget we were also trying to write a pgce 
to train teachers for a new curriculum that didn't exist yet, which was a, a particularly special touch, I thought. Mm. But what it did do, and I suppose we should try and concentrate on some of the positives, was that, you know, when you start a game with a blank sheet of paper, which of course wasn't completely blank, as Tom says, we had the accreditation criteria, and we also had some excellent sort of advisors, and we looked to research as well that was out there, some of which um, uh, the article points to, to try and decide what model for teachers teacher education was going to be best to enact and realise the aspirations of, of the vision for ITE in Wales. And, and just to give you sort of a flavour of those things, as Tom mentioned, is much more sort of centering on this partnership working and this joint accountability between schools and universities in being and delivering um, teacher education, but also the acknowledgement that student teachers learn in very different ways. Um, They are the beneficiaries of very different types of knowledge that they're asked to bring to bear in lots of different ways, but in order to help them sort of find a way forward and develop their practice. And that happens in two different sites and in previous years those sites were kept very much sort of separate that's the site of the university and the site of the school and this new accreditation criteria was an invitation actually a mandate for IT providers to make sure that universities and schools were working together to decide on curriculum to decide on the sort of pedagogical approaches to use with um, student teachers and to help them bring that theory and practice together in a way that was going to help them uh, you know sort of find a way forward in a contextualized way in an authentic way on the ground in the classroom yeah and I think the article kind of does a nice job here of of getting us into land a little bit because it's very easy to float around in all this sort of vision stuff you know schools and universities working together in harmony co-constructing everything and all of that but actually defining some of this stuff and and finding your way towards it is what you need to do i quite like that section there's a section quite early on where the authors kind of dig a little bit into this concept of teacher agency and it's a thing that's been discussed a few times on the podcast i mean the mighty judith neen uh, emeritus podcast guest from here has done some really good stuff on teacher agency it's one of those things that's really easy to kind of say oh we should all get agency it sounds lovely doesn't it a bit like eating your greens but it's not necessarily something that's either easy to pin down as a definition or achieve in practice so I quite like that they take a moment to talk about Bandura and Priestley and all those people who've spent large amounts of their career trying to nail nail down what this stuff is yeah absolutely and and um, I think the article does this well by sort of contrasting two views of agency Bandura who is a sort of psychologist coming from it at the angle that agency is something that's personal um, whereas Priestley and others take a more ecological perspective so noting that agency might be something that you've got individually but that can be in conflict sometimes with the conditions that you're experiencing on the ground as but a a tangible example of that is you know you might go off on a professional learning course as a teacher and find out some really interesting new ways of working that you are very eager to bring back to your department um, and to your school so you bound back in with all of those things thinking I've got the knowledge I've got the power now to make a difference and you're 
met with with some kind of resistance. And I'm not saying that that might necessarily be a bad thing because sort of criticality around those new ideas is important. But I think what Priestley has found out through his research and others is that it's not a simple means of you find that agency within, and obviously I'm being very reductive of Bandura's work here, um, you find that agency within and you, you, you've just got, got the ability then to make change. It's really relevant, this bit. I mean, I know possibly we may have lost a few listeners saying we're, we're going to talk about an initial teacher education article. But this bit about teacher agency, I think, is massively relevant to schools and all sorts of education institutions. Because buried in that first paragraph is this great bit, isn't it, where he says agency isn't something that people have or possess, but something that's achieved. And then further on, it says it's it's something that people do in a specific context. I suppose it's really tempting, isn't it, if you're in charge of some education institution and you're trying to move things on to just kind of grab everybody put them in the hall for a meeting and say well done you've all got agency best of luck with that (laughs) (laughs) but you can't do that you you have to create the conditions for agency and then agency is a thing that comes from within the staff it's not a thing that as a leader you can just sort of wrap up in a bow and bestow on everyone I think despite it being a teacher education article I think there's a huge sort of moral in there for everybody involved yeah absolutely I suppose bringing it back to student teachers we could assume that you know being the sort of university tutor side of things on the course that they come and they they learn stuff at university engage with a load of theory and then uh, as I just explained earlier on they bound straight into their their placement and they have the agency to try things out of course it's a lot more complex than that agency uh, as it says in the article is a transactional process so student teachers can't just be expected to take that decontextualized theory into the classroom there is a process that they need to be supported in by teacher educators that are in the context of the school to give them that sort of agency to help them develop that situational contextual agency to try things out and reflect on them and and refine what they're doing. I think that's another great example of something that's really easy to say and not so easy to kind of do, isn't it? This idea that we take the theory from university and we take the practice from school and we kind of mash it all up together and out comes kind of wonderful things. And they make the point in the article, actually, that this isn't a given. You know, the presence of universities in this whole thing is not a given because we know that over in England there is a bit of a kind of row going on about the position of universities. We've got colleagues over there who feel... That the, the kind of way that the government in Westminster has been moving is to try and marginalise universities. I mean, they, they have their theories as to why that is. You know, they feel that, that maybe they just want to get rid of any sort of dissenting voices from the kind of centrally mandated view of what teaching should be. Whatever that reason might be, we know that, for example, Oxford and Cambridge have threatened to shut their teacher education departments down rather than go along with some of the more kind of extreme ideas that have been put forward over in England for what is a kind of expectation that universities will conform to a centrally provided sort of ideological framework for education which goes completely against what universities are for. Yeah it does and it it really kind of sets us against pits us sort of against one another and I think what this article does is it it quite clearly lays out the contribution of schools and the contribution of universities in teacher education but then in the case studies it gives really clear examples of where when we bring those two worlds together and those two sets of minds together we can create sort of very unique situated learning opportunities for student teachers such as the school-led training days that we have here um, at Cardiff Met 
in the Cardiff Partnership that we'll talk about a little bit later um, in this podcast. But I think if we just return back to that bit of the article, Tom, and just see what it's got to say about those two different sets of contribution and how we've set about bringing those two worlds together. Yeah, and they start with the contribution of schools talking about the fact that, you know, it's obviously it's long been considered that it's quite a good thing for student teachers to end up in schools at some part uh, of their time. But there's this kind of talk about different levels or hierarchies or kind of, you know, how, how you, you classify the knowledge. I know we're big fans of Donald McIntyre's work on this, aren't we? Educational knowledge and how he classifies it, yes, you know, sort of running from that real craft knowledge that you have as a, a long-serving teacher about just how, how to do things, all the way through to, you know, the most the driest of journal articles. But he's really at pains to point out that one is not better than the other. We had a really interesting chat with it about this in school the other day, actually. I was, I was doing something with some student teachers in school, and we were talking about um, how, how teaching is a bit like learning to drive. You know, learning to teach is like learning to drive, and as part of that analogy, we asked them to break down the things you need to do to learn to drive and it was really interesting that all the drivers in the room were really struggling to break it down into small enough chunks you know they were talking about things like overtaking somebody as being a, a fundamental building block of of learning to drive you know you learn to overtake someone and we were having to say to them no no no, go back even further you know think about all the different things you have to do when you change gear you can't just write change gear you've got to write about all that kind of stuff you do and they found it really hard and it, it was interesting for them then to reflect on how that might feel for their mentor when they're trying to do exactly the same thing with the process of of learning to teach. Mm, It's fascinating that analogy isn't it because it proves straight away that when you've come to a sort of level of mastery you might call it it becomes very difficult to a remember what it was like to be a novice and b articulate some of those tacit things that are very much sort of automatic in your practice to somebody who is a novice so that they can fully understand that particular moment that they observed in your lesson and so i guess it's an, another reason why it's really important for us to work in partnership because we're we're all teacher educators we're all tasked with this development of practical professional knowledge but also how to sort of deconstruct it and and shine a light on it um, for student teachers so that they can not only understand it but sort of seek to embody it in a way that is right for them and their particular identity as a teacher because what we we don't necessarily want is mini versions of mentors all, all over the shop. So what about us as universities? I thought there was some really interesting stuff in here from from the work of Barnett. And there's a lot in there about the sort of pursuit of truth. But the thing that's particularly interesting is the need for sort of a conversation around the truths that we sort of hold, we disseminate as academics or that have been put forward by academics so that we can engage in sort of criticality Um, and I like this quote here that rather uh, a conversation involves participants who are willing to expose their viewpoint to the critical gaze of others now there's, there's something about the university environment that does allow us to and actually this is not necessarily unique to the university environment now um, because of the way we work in partnership with schools but this opportunity for us to think about theory for us to 
expose some of our viewpoints to the gaze of others also the university tutors um so we're sort of part of that process so that we can try out and test those theories and and start to mull them over and and consider i suppose what that might look like in practice and how that compares and contrasts with what the student teachers are experiencing on the ground in the classroom so i think what i like about this is that there is a particular type of knowledge and theory that comes from research that student teachers will find at university in abundance and that sort of environment where they can be open to criticality yeah it's, I mean, it's definitely the case that sort of craft knowledge stuff of teaching you can't really do that in university because you haven't got classes of pupils you know floating around on tap that you can use so I, I like the fact that we can now sort of happily say that 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 craft knowledge is best done in the classroom by serving teachers and actually you know incidentally it's quite a difficult one for us as ex-classroom teachers ourselves to kind of let go of that role I mean all of us were mentors of students you know we were in our in our working environment and now we have to find something else you know some other contribution for ourselves but it's absolutely the case that that is is what you do when you're in school but it is the sort of cliche that everybody says a school is a bubble and you know school is very much rooted in its local context rooted in its catchment area in its socioeconomic status in the kind of philosophies of its management and if you do just kind of go into that school and do things the way that they're done in that school then that's great you know you're going to get on very very well in that school but you may or may not end up working there you may end up working somewhere completely different and you do need to get out of that bubble in order to put some of this stuff into context in order to fully shine a light on it because yes you know you can expose viewpoints to a critical gaze up to a point in school but you are still kind of in that school community and being able to set things against one another compare things one another is difficult to do when you're situated inside that bubble and so the university environment gives you that place and I think one of the really nice things about the new way of working is that we're seeing a big reduction in that really toxic kind of narrative of university initial teacher education just being a kind of irrelevant mad place of hippies just giving you useless theory all the time whereas all the kind of good stuff goes on when you're in school because that attitude is is to kind of deny the the rich variety of what different schools are like and the many different ways of doing things and and to be able to acknowledge that you need a space where you can can look a little bit more widely but can still acknowledge the incredible importance of spending a lot of your time in a working school environment. I think that's made for a much nicer sort of way of working, really. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what by setting out, you know, those those two domains and contributions that the school and the university have to make to teacher education, it, it then provides a nice springboard to what the future ended up looking like and how it played out in practice from the perspective of three different institutions who were responding to the accreditation criteria. So to begin with, you know, on a basic level, we had to have sort of a shared distribution of power amongst schools and university tutors 
from you know the co-constructive phase of the new programs but then also to the sort of structure of governance for programs and it, it talks about the governance structure at um, Swansea University um, and, and how decision making is the priority and the gift of both school colleagues and university tutors who sit at all sort of layers of governance from strategic level at the sort of top tier of the board all the way down to what we would call sort of steering groups who are looking at specific facets of teacher education programs and I think it's nice that the article gives some some really specific examples of how having a more collaborative co-constructive approach to governance means that you can refresh programs in ways that sort of meet the needs of both sort of sides of the table. An example is that a head teacher at Swansea University and their partnership suggested that student interviews should take place in school rather than university. And the punchline there was that they wanted them to have pupil involvement in their interview process. And because of that suggestion, that is now part of the way they conduct their interviews at Swansea university so that that might never have come to the fore in the sort of previous iteration of of the structure of governance of ITE programs and then we move on to have a look at how we sort of integrate the university and school perspectives in the sort of curriculum and program design Um, and something that's unique to us in Cardiff Met in the Cardiff partnership is we have these 15 school-led training days throughout the year whereby 15 to 30 PGC student teachers are based in a single school in our lead partnership schools who are responsible for co-planning co-constructing the content of those days I'm going to let Tom talk in a bit more detail about what that might look like because I know that you worked really closely recently with a school colleague to sort of refresh one of our um, well a couple of our school-led training days and you actually delivered it with him very recently so do you want to tell us about that Tom? Yeah it's it's a nice thing really because I suppose if you've got university days and school days then you've still got a bit of a divide because you're in one place or the other and, and you can interrogate knowledge from one in the other place and vice versa but yeah, the school-led training days are kind of this really nice middle way where I suppose you're you're delivering something that looks like university content, but you're doing it in a working school environment. So the, the students are not being teachers, they're being learners, but they are in the school where they'll do one of their placements. And so what's great about that is that you can talk about things, which is all well and good, but then the bit that we can't do in university, we can then go, right, let's go and have a look at that and literally walk a few doors down the corridor and see it happening. So you can get a really nice mix of the two environments there by doing that. And yeah, I spent a day doing that with with one of my colleagues from school last week and we had a lovely time, you know, and it, it really, really helped the students recognize the different levels that they're working on you know the fact that they are subject experts in secondary or they're you know they're certainly educated to a much higher level than the people that they teach so that in that respect they're having to kind of come all the way down back to the level of novices but then in terms of being teachers they themselves are novices so they're both experts and novices at the same time and and are being taught how to teach their subject by somebody who who is an expert and so they sit in this really interesting place we had so many interesting discussions I, I did enjoy it very much and I think it just helps the 
student teachers with that that weird skill you have to have of kind of zooming in and out between the different levels that you inhabit yeah and i I suppose that the 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 other unique aspect of the slt days is that um as tom said they're situated in the school at the time they get to go and see that quite quickly in practice so we often combine it with things like observations learning walks but then they also have the opportunity to take what they learned from that day and try it out in their own contexts because of course when they're doing these school-led training days they're not necessarily in the school that they are currently placed within so you know there's this nice sort of through line from a bit of input theoretically from the university although schools um, engage with the literature as well so a little bit of a look at the literature opportunity as Tom said to sort of debate discuss critique on those school-led training days see it in practice in the classroom and then do some testing of the of that theory and application of that theory when they get back out into their own placements so i suppose that's a really good example of how our partnership have tried to work much more closely together as teacher educators and to respond to the accreditation criteria, which is asking for more opportunities for student teachers to bring theory and practice and vice versa to bear um, and interrogate one against the other in order to find a way forward. Now, the final part of this article talks about uh, the Caban partnership and the work that they've done in re-envisaging the role of the mentor in this new world of initial teacher education, who, of course, is in a position of, you know, of real power because they work very, very closely with the students on a day-to-day basis when they're out on the school placements. But, of course, in light of this drive towards theory-informing practice and a much more sort of deliberative approach approach to student teachers developing their practice we needed to and and caban too all teacher educators in Wales needed to sort of re-envisage what that mentor role looked like what it involved and the article goes into some depth and detail about how caban structure their mentoring to ensure that there is the sort of equity of provision but that more importantly mentors feel well equipped as teacher educators to guide and support student teachers in their practice and also help encourage a more sort of inquiry based approach to how they're developing their practice so it names a couple of approaches that they use such as lesson study which would be really useful for people to have a look at as sort of separate um, strategies if you're a mentor or if indeed you're just looking to influence the development of of your own practice then lesson study is is a really interesting approach to look into. So I guess we've we've come to the end of the article now and we kind of just need to sum up what we found and and where we go next. Yeah, a bit of a random one to pick, I suppose, for a generalist uh, set of listeners. But I think the thing that really grabbed me about this is is that an opening that reminded us just how kind of unhappy everybody was with teacher education, the quality of it in Wales, you know, the, the extent to which people felt it was fit for purpose. I mean, back sort of 2013, 14, 15, Furlong, Estin, all sorts of people were all pretty much agreed that it wasn't really working. And I I think I was quite surprised when I started working um, here in 2015, the PGC that we were delivering was basically the PGC that I had done 15 years before. And I didn't get the impression that 15 years before it was a particularly shiny new PGC. And so we really have in the last sort of four years come a really long way from a position where 
basically everyone was not very happy to a place where at least we're all working well together and we've, we've really brought in a lot of new new things theory an expectation on us to be research active which i knew i know is a new thing and sometimes it is just nice when you're stuck in the middle of a, a many years long process of education reform to just take a moment and look back and, and realize how far we've come so even if perhaps you're not a teacher educator yourself working in a university you may be involved in teacher education in a school context and this this summary this kind of narrative of what we've done why we've done it um, and where we've come it's timely to read it and just remind remind ourselves of of where we are and why we're here so that's why we're recommending this article from the EBSCO database the reform of initial teacher education in Wales from vision to reality I'm going to name check the massive crowd of authors John Furlong Jeremy Griffiths Cecilia Hannigan Davis Alma Harris and Michelle Jones and you can find that article in the Oxford Review of Education and it's available via the EBSCO database which you can have if you are a member of the EWC which you are if you teach in Wales so have a lovely time reading that do and as uh, we task all of our guests on the podcast with um, we have done our homework too so we've got some short slots for you for this episode the first is something interesting and we're going to present something to try from that source this book is called beginning teachers learning making experience count and the authors are Catherine Byrne Hazel Hager and Trevor Mutton all of whom are um, sort of eminent giants uh, Giants of of initial teacher education, theorists, uh, researchers, teacher educators themselves. And this book um, is based on their research, a longitudinal study where they looked very, very closely at how uh, beginning teachers learn, believe it or not. But this book is very much aimed at teacher educators, specifically those who are school based. So if you're a school based teacher educator, if you're a mentor, if you're what we would call a senior mentor or principal mentor, then it's well worth a read and the bit that I want to draw your attention to is something to try comes from the chapter at the back where they sort of synthesize all of the the investigative um, literature that they've looked at all of the empirical research that they've done in order to make some recommendations about how teacher educators in school can help beginning teachers become more effective learners and one of the subheadings here is promoting a deliberative approach towards learning from experience and sort of the punchline here is that It may be in the previous models of teacher education, the mentor might observe a student teacher teach, conclude a number of points for future development, but the missing bit might have been the identification of particular ways in which the student teacher can begin to address them. And with this new sort of established focus on inquiry, about research informing their practice, giving them some nudges towards how they can address those targets for future development and how they can use their time productively in a deliberative way to um, to learn from that experience can really help them to sort of take ownership of their development. So for example, let's say you've observed your student teacher and something that often comes up is the need for them to improve their use of questioning. And so there might be a number of suggestions that you can give to other student teachers so they can use their time effectively to address that target such as focused observation of an experienced teacher known to be particularly skilled in this respect 
deliberative experimentation with particular strategies. So, you know, they can be derived from literature or from craft knowledge. Experienced teachers can impart some of those strategies. Opportunities to discuss their initial ideas before they trial them. So that sort of professional dialogue around the techniques. Some advanced planning. Uh, Another interesting one that um, is sometimes difficult to factor in time to do, but might be more easy to achieve if you just go for the audio approach, is this is to either video record or audio record the student teacher's teaching and then give them the opportunity to replay and analyse the phrasing of their questions. So a really kind of focused record of particular snippets of a lesson that allow them to think uh, more deeply about you know, how effective the questions are, the time that they allow for the pupils to formulate their responses. And this range um, of deliberative techniques, not only do they focus specifically on the trainee's own classroom, but they also encourage them to look beyond it. And in doing so, the authors of this book, um, Hagerburn and Mutton, say that it serves to help them sort of expand their frame of reference that they're drawing upon. So, you know, I often use this metaphor with my student teachers about, you know, sometimes you need to take take a big step back and look at sort of other sources of knowledge in order to come back into the context of your classroom and find a way forward that's going to work for you and and for your learners. So expanding your your trainee's frame of reference by using these deliberative approaches uh, might be the outcome. Thanks for doing our homework. That is a really good book, though. Beginning Teachers Learning by, what order do they come in? Burn, Hagger Burn, and Mutton. Burn, Hagger and Mutton. We'll yeah. have to get that, that order right. Yeah, definitely. Better, better get the order right. It's a very slim book. I think if you're in any way involved in working with student teachers, whether you're in school or university, it's pretty much a must read. And a particular shout out for the kind of pen portraits of student teachers who don't have a sort of straightforward trajectory from from novice to qualified teacher those are really really interesting i think yeah totally agree so hopefully that's given you um some insight into an article that is particularly close to home for us um some other things to to maybe chew over and have a read of and try out in your own practice and we'll be back with you as usual in two weeks time thanks for listening You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Thanks to the Education Workforce Council for inviting us to recommend an interesting article from the EBSCO archive for Medal Maur, their book and journal club. We hope you'll find something you like in there too. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. You can find us on Twitter at TalkTeachingPod if you want to say hello. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching.